Welcome to Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School. I'm Kate Gilbert, head of school, and I'm here with Megan Muller, our director of communications and marketing. Hello. John Muller, our dean of upper school. Hello. And Chris Yee, our dean of co-curriculars. Bonjour. (laughs) Um, We are here to talk about something that we just completed our, well, we hope twice a year we spend a great deal of time with a single dialogue of Plato's this fall. We spent over 30 hours discussing as a college and a group of faculty, Plato's Republic. We call it the marathon, and it is a, a tradition of our school as well as some previous programs that we've been a part of. And so today we're going to talk about why. We are a place where we care about dialectical education, but this format is strange i think even in those circles our president dr reynolds was a student of dr al guyers uh, who was at the university of rochester and i think even he who got it from another very reputable source is leo strauss is that right Mm -hmm. at the university of chicago even dr guyer it was considered an extreme form of dialectic instruction to dedicate such a large number of hours, especially condensed into, as we did one weekend, to study a close read of a single text. So it is something that is fine to question because it is unusual. Right. And it's worth pointing out a close read of a text that, for the most part, everyone is very familiar with, mm. at least in the leadership circle of the school. Um, how many How many times have each of you read The Republic by now, do you think? I think for me, it's got to be around 11 mm-hmm. individual I think times. I like eight or nine, okay. seven, seven or eight. I maybe. would guess six or seven for mm-hmm. me. I think I'm around eight too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, this isn't coming together and puzzling through something that we're just seeing for the first time, though that does apply to some faculty and some students. But why do you, thinking about why we consider this worthwhile, even if you have read The Republic 5, 10 15 times. Goodness knows how many times Dr. Reynolds has read it at this point. I was going to say, or in the case of Dr. Reynolds. uh, Right, right. Or Naomi Geyer, who came (laughs) out, Dr. Geyer's daughter, who came out here to do this with us. She has surely read it more times than I have, more times than anyone except Dr. Reynolds, probably, who was present. So the format of the marathon, as we practice it at our school, we will take all day on Thursday um, as an 8 a.m. until the close of the school at about 4.30. We will do a Friday night session and then all day on Saturday, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So it was Or later. Or later, yeah. yes. Oftentimes much later. So many, many hours are spent in discussion and we invite every faculty member of our school, um, not just invite, but strongly encourage them to attend as much as they can. So why spend 20 to 30 hours of your hard-earned, precious weekend thinking about and discussing with colleagues and college students Plato's Republic? I mean, I'm not sure what else I would want to do. <laughs> <laughs> that might be an odd... So, uh, so you know what you mean by that, but but <laughs> how have you reached this point where you think, why would I do anything else? Because that sounds bonkers to a lot of people (laughs) and i I, i'd be willing to say it sounds a little crazy to a lot of people who consider themselves very dedicated to classical education to the great books themselves why would we get together and spend 30 hours within a few days reading a text that most of us have read before i don't know what sort of person you would assume would want to do that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but i would guess that 
I am not the sort of person you would assume that that is true of. Mm-hmm. I think it's really funny having the Facebook memories thing available now because I can now know with certainty that my first reaction upon reading The Republic when I was a 17-year-old sophomore in college was, Plato's a socialist. You. <laughs> How charming. Yeah, I know. I'm very proud of myself and my, my collegiate scholarship. Yeah. Um, so that's something you share with Joseph Stalin. Then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I get this book. Yeah, I, I get what's it. happening here. Yeah, and it, and also, you know, these these sort of marathons were offered to us as college students, mm-hmm. and I never took advantage of them. I never Neither wanted did I. to. Didn't yeah. sound fun to me. I'm not sure when the switch flipped that I realized it was fun. I think. Over the course of my undergrad career, I accidentally ended up in hundreds and hundreds of hours of discussion, like three hours at a time over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, by accidentally, you mean accidentally for you. It was very intentional on the part of your teachers. Oh, right. Yeah, no, they crafted it in a way that, you know, definitely they that's what they wanted to do. My mother told me that I was applying for a scholarship opportunity, mm-hmm. not for an honors college. So I was <laughs> really surprised when I came to school and found that I had, like, other things to do that weren't just sitting in GE classes. <laughs> so that is a background. Um, I Yeah, I, I didn't expect to enjoy marathoning, but there's something about spending time with a group of people looking for something bigger and more important than any one of us that seems just fascinating and captivating and worthy of time in a way that almost no other activity I participate in does. This sort of search for truth, especially in a place that it seems that it probably is, but I haven't seen it all the way yet, is fascinating and so worthy of my attention that I I don't know I find it it ends up feeling more restful than a lot of the things that I would generally want to do on my weekend Mm -hmm. right like I could just sit lay in my bed and poke around on my phone and and be tired (laughs) but somehow being active and being active in pursuit of goodness and truth and beauty in a community with people it just feels like the best way I could possibly spend my time there's something unique about the Republic, too. I kept coming back to this throughout the weekend as we were discussing the text. For a text that is trying to get you to think critically about images and what they can and can't do and what they should and shouldn't do, it's a book full of complicated imagery, imagery that you really have to stop and imagine and think about and draw and puzzle over. We've done this with other texts that were much shorter. Now, the mm-hmm. Republic for is, is, is a long dialogue. That means that it would be difficult to walk away from even 30 hours of Republic discussion feeling like you remotely covered everything. Mm-hmm. For me, that's part of why what Chris was saying, it's energizing because it feels like, what is it that Steinbeck said, and still the box is not yet full? Is mm-hmm. that right from the beginning of the East of Eden? That's how it feels when we finish a discussion. Like, th- of course there's more. There's way more. There's so much more that we didn't cover that we, like, brushed the surface of. And when people hear 30 hours, they think, wow, you must have really been, you know, running on fumes trying to think of things to keep talking about. When in reality, I think we focused on, I don't know, 10 or 12 passages in the Republic and did not exhaust mm-hmm. those. Mm-hmm. Like, every time we moved on, it was because Dr. Reynolds said, okay, we really should move on to this next set of passages. And it was never because the discussion had petered out. It was because if we didn't move on, there was no way we were going to get 
to even the small set of portions of things that we were going to talk about. And that's the part of it that I think makes it feel energizing too, is that you realize for the group of people that's in the room with the text that you have, there's no reason for the conversation to ever stop. So when are we going to do this again? I mean, that's the first question. Mm -hmm. The second we all get out of the room Mm -hmm. is okay. What, like when can we schedule the next marathon? I think it's because it shows us that even when we do feel tired and drained, we can draw energy and inspiration through discussion with each other over a rich text because the well never runs dry. Right. That helps kind of bring forward why we rely on this so much as a sort of central point of faculty development because this is something that we keep coming back to together. Not the Republic per se, but discussion, dialogue about a great text. We come back to this together in a way that energizes, in a way that brings out the questions that you actually have mm-hmm. instead of assuming that you know mm-hmm. just because you're the teacher. Yeah, I, uh, I have got the Republic figured it out, no problem. No, like, and if you think that, you are surely missing something. So if you're coming back to this, even if you don't teach philosophy, if you don't teach the Republic, you are going to come out of this extended discussion, your own questions clarified for you in kind of brought to the forefront. Like what are, what are the things that I really care about? What are the things that I want to pursue? What do I think about goodness? What do I think about virtue? Um, that apparently didn't go so well in the discussion. I need to reconsider how I'm approaching these questions. And teachers run the risk of of assuming that they have got their subject figured out. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to come to a central experience where you adopt the posture of a student once again. Mm-hmm. And so we, we really prefer this over other forms of faculty development or, or in service where you know these kind of just notoriously like unpleasant and, and laborious <laughs> dull. and dull yeah experiences for for teachers kind of at the mercy of administrators who are like well we know that they need to build some kind of community together but we're not quite sure what a good way to do that is so games we're going to play some games <laughs> together and that's fine but doing something real together like discussing virtue discussing justice for three days mm-hmm. is a is an irreplaceable experience something that i have been thinking about a lot this school year is how countercultural uh, maybe particularly right now classical education is because we are asking our students to invest in educational activities that's a wide range including the musical arts and the fine arts and outdoor time and gardening as well as a great deal of of reading and difficult mathematics and scientific exploration that is requiring of them a certain uh, willingness towards effort and contemplation that goes against the modern trends of not just education but of pop culture so we spend a lot of time in fairly impoverished versions of pop culture that don't require much of us. Um, Netflix streaming is a great example, a really easy way to consume a great deal without having to think about it very much. And it's, I think, easier than ever for adults to fall into that. I'm the mother of two very small children and the head of a school. My husband teaches here. We're very busy. And it's so easy for us to go home 
and to put the kids to bed and to sit on the couch and just kind of collapse. And Mm -hmm. what I was reminded of in the uh, Republic Marathon is that we need to cultivate in ourselves that same ability for a sort of working contemplation of important things that we are asking of our students every single day. Another opportunity we give our faculty is faculty choir. And I think the same thing, like we are asking ourselves to read music, to think hard about things, to use our bodies in ways that we might not, because we're asking our students of the same thing. We're asking our students the same thing because we affirm that it is good. And so if we're not willing to devote our weekends to the things we're asking our students to spend hours and hours of their week doing, well, maybe we don't really believe in it. It also sort of attacks the modern notion of what rest is, Yeah, I think. Like what Kate is describing is what I think most people, Chris, you described it too, is what most people would say is like how they unwind. Yes. And having a creative as in it makes something, not mm-hmm. just like, cool, I don't know what people th- <laughs> think now creative means. Creative like it makes something. Like a creative activity that you do that gives you a different kind of rest is resting like Mm -hmm. going faculty choir is a great example yes it's one more thing on your calendar it's a thing on your schedule you might have to practice you might Mm -hmm. have to listen to the music outside of school you might Um, be bad at it yeah you Mm -hmm. might have to like (laughs) learn how to read music because you didn't know how you have to learn how to breathe correctly all of those things are not what many people would now consider rest but I think it's providing rest from the other things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you approach it in that way, I think that's why you can give up an entire weekend and then go back to work on Monday, actually feeling pretty jazzed, not drained because you were not, something was being poured into you, Mm -hmm. even though you were giving of yourself to have that experience. Yeah. It's sort of inherently enriching Mm -hmm. even when you're giving yourself to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually uh, have a blog that I think will be coming out on uh, the school blog soon that, that is is directly about this. I, I read right before the marathon, um, Joseph Pieper's uh, Leisure. Oh, yeah. Um, which is great. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading it and, and writing the blog post is that most of how we tend to just fall back on thinking of rest now is how the medievals and everyone before would have classified sloth. Sloth, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> vegetative. Right, it's vegetative, right? And, and it's this interesting, it's a deadness of the will. Hmm. Like you are unwilling to exist with yourself. So there's this sort of like depressive despair that I think we then <sighs> fall into even further. It's like this weird hmm. cycle, right? Where I'm depressed, I'm tired, now I'm going to rest mm-hmm. i'm doing air quotes but this is a podcast <laughs> and instead of resting i participate in sloth which is actually still further separating myself from myself right mm-hmm. because i'm killing my will and keeping it from pushing me onto activity um and so he ends up defining leisure peeper does in a way that pretty much is just the republic marathon like it's it's contemplative mm-hmm. it's open to allowing the the wonder of the universe to affect you and to move you how it will like a lack of activity in that way it's more of like an active waiting which totally reminds me of that bit about the winds of the dialectic moving you Mm -hmm. as they will that we discussed argument wherever Mm -hmm. it leads Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so yeah i think uh, the, the big thing though that stuck out to me was that we tend to think of rest as 
for the purpose of rejuvenating us so that we can go back to work. Mm. So right, it's based on this like defining of us as work people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you have to rest so that you can then work again. But if you didn't have to work again, you wouldn't have to rest, <laughs> which is where that sort of idea of, oh, yeah, how could you possibly go and, and discuss that for that long and then just go back to work on Monday? Because mm -hmm. that's assuming like, a, oh, I need off time from doing anything before I can do a thing again, mm -hmm. which is just not how like the human person is designed to work. Like we are happiest generally when we're doing stuff. We need a break from toil, mm -hmm. but I don't know that we need a break from any activity at all that is you know contemplative and restful and peaceful and good right it also makes a big supposition that toil is what you're made for <laughs> and you only like rest is only necessary so that you can be better at toiling <laughs> <laughs> that sounds bad yes <laughs> yeah and it assumes that maybe work and toil are the same and that therefore there's only one kind of rest which is which is not true it, it seems like we're making a helpful distinction between work and toil Toil being the kind of thing that you might actually need a break from. So, for mm. example, we all teach in this room, varying numbers of classes. I would suggest that you need a break from grading sometimes. <laughs> you, need a, you need a break from assessments and lesson plans and things like that. Though we, we really try and, and make those only the essential and necessary parts of our teachers' lives here. And, and not overly burdensome but but still i feel that sometimes i need a break from from grading you know if i've made it through three stacks of essays in a weekend and i just need to not do that again for a while but after discussing the republic for a weekend i feel like i need that every day mm. so that suggests that it's truly a different kind of activity mm -hmm. right it is the thing that more chris was talking about but i think I think at the moment, if I were a listener, I would be still wondering, what did we do during the marathon exactly? Like a little bit more, what did it look like? We talked generally ab about it, and then we talked about some of the other things we do here with faculty choir and different ways of thinking about work and rest. And I would, I think I would still be wondering, but but how did you do that for 30 hours? Like what exactly did that look like mm -hmm. from you know any given hour of the Republic Marathon? What did that look like? Yeah. So we are fortunate to have Dr. Reynolds, whose PhD work was in Plato. He uh, focused on Timaeus, but has devoted years and years and years of his life in the study of Plato. So I think he prepared for weeks ahead of time a pattern of discussion through which to lead us. He had an overarching question that he was hoping each sub-question would lead to. And then he divided the discussion time starting Thursday morning by two hour segments. Mm -hmm. Would you say something yeah. like about that with a sub question for each of those two hour segments? So in that way, it was almost fairly highly structured way of working through a very intentional selection of passages from the republics leading to attempting to answer a very large question which I don't want to get the wording wrong on, but does anyone remember it exactly? I'm, I'm close. I'm like, I could like grasp like the theme of it. How does one remain a true lover of wisdom? Yes. Yeah. So that was his, the question that we were spending three days thinking about, but then there were, I would say what, 10 sub questions mm -hmm. from there that we pursued by looking at very specific passages at two hours at a time. Yeah. 
So mm-hmm. like the function of poetry, mm-hmm. the function of music, how vision can improve through education in the larger scheme, the how does one remain is that what i said remain a lover of mm-hmm. wisdom yeah was the was the thing we were really going after but in that no part of the republic is out of bounds right. so if the discussion is centered in a certain part of the text anyone was free at any time to reference another part of the text but all other texts are out of bounds it's very funny because again this is exactly what the republic talks about this happens a lot in platonic dialogues everyone needs to stay together and you can't If the argument is leading and you're imagining that you're on a journey together as a group, you can't try to take the group where not everyone can follow. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, though extra textual information is often helpful and may help with interpretation and may point to meanings that make things go, usually it's it's expediency, I think, that makes people want to appeal to outside texts. And Mm -hmm. that's not a goal of this kind of format. So that's to be, that's a red flag. But the the idea being if two, even if three quarters of the room or everyone but one person has read Phaedo, like, no, you still can't appeal to passages in that text or even general ideas that you're claiming are from that text because not every, it's not something that's shared by the group, which is why everyone having a fresh, <coughs> close read of the text that you came to discuss is a key precursor to being able to do this well. Yeah. So a couple of the, I would say, kind of rules of discussion and then the group that we had together, I think on average, there was about 20 to 25 people in the room mm-hmm. at a time, yeah. um, sometimes larger, sometimes smaller. Over half of our college was there for all of it, like didn't miss a minute. Uh, we have a small college, but um, <laughs> and then uh, several of our faculty members were there for, if not the entire thing, vast majority of it. Yet people came with very different experiences, like The the people in this room have read The Republic many times. Dr. Reynolds has read it many more times. But we had faculty members or freshmen in college who maybe approached it for the first time. And so people of very different experience levels, um, also with the nature of discussion. Some of us have been discussion leaders in our Socratic classes for years. But our first grade teacher came who had never experienced a discussion class of that kind before. But as is the case in all of our discussion classes, the entire community in the room is as any individuals as able and encouraged to speak and contribute as anyone else. There's no guru who's in charge so much as there is a leader and a community of people coming together to discuss the question. Yeah. And we've done this before where we used a a different sort of format where it was like a close read and you start on the first page on the first line of the first book and you just read super slowly until someone has a question and then you speak up and then you go. And we started doing that. We did that once a week for a long time and we Mm -hmm. had gotten through, I don't know, like 15 pages of the Republic. You know, it's it's that's one way of doing it. But this was um, Mm -hmm. sort of not not hopping and skipping around aimlessly, but. Um, like Kate said, there was like a selection of texts that Dr. Reynolds had decided beforehand would sort of help lead us on through the discussion and sort of address the questions that he had developed. But even so, the discussion moved through the book mm-hmm. at a pretty good clip because that's the benefit of having people in the room who care enough to read the text well beforehand. Mm-hmm. It's also a testament to how rich the Republic is. But it, it should be said 
you don't need to do this with only the Republic and ever only the Republic. It's a great place to start if you're wanting to do something like this for a group of friends, a group of colleagues, or put in place at your school. But this can be done with, with any great text. How do we know if it's a great text? Well, if you can discuss it for 30 hours <laughs> and feel like you just really started to get going. Yeah, know? I was going to ask... Um, how do you, how would we assess if a text is worthy of something like a marathon? That's a great question. I think it would be if you could do a marathon on it, mm-hmm. right? In Great Books 4 last year, when I was teaching Great Books 4, we were discussing Freud. And it was a really good group of students who really, like, you know, we went into it. And we're like, okay, we're going to really do our best to dig in as much as we can to this particular text and, and find all of the nuances, find all the questions, by the end of a couple discussions, we were, it was very like, okay, we could go into more sections, but I feel like we, we get it. have what he's doing. Like, he's not hiding anything. He's not really crafting images for us to unpack. He's not being super careful in his word choices all the time. He's just saying this thing that we all disagree with and doesn't seem to have the sort of argument behind it that we can continue to talk about for forever we've plumbed the depths yeah like we've Mm -hmm. gotten there and which is an odd thing to say right about about someone who has such a huge space in Mm -hmm. sort of modern intellectual thought but we got to the end and we're like i i I was really trying you know we were all really trying not to just straw man not to belittle anything but to actually just plumb the depths and find things and we sort of got to the end and so if you can feel that way, it means either you're all really, really bad at discussing, which, you know, is still a possibility, or that the text just isn't worthy that kind of deep mm-hmm. inquiry. Like Plato, who is an utter master of language and of crafting images, who, you know, at the marathon, we had to have had multiple times where we spent an hour on, like, a word that he chose to use in a sentence that seemed odd, right. and then mm-hmm. trying to unpack the meanings there. And it was always fruitful which is always still unexpected to me in Plato. kind of because of that chris i would say you know something kate said a minute ago we don't have a guru and that's mm-hmm. true but you do need a guide how would a someone who's new to this choose a book well one way to do it would be to trust the guidance of someone who's familiar with the world of the great texts and someone who you also think there's a good reason to personally trust and who is assuring you, no, really, there's more to this book than you have immediately supposed. There's more to the Republic than the political theory that you know, <laughs> co- college Chris so uh, found so grotesque, right? Um, there's, there's more to Augustine than the, the incident of the pear tree, which is the, <laughs> you know, the thing that college john mainly remembered Mm -hmm. right for perhaps obvious reasons like what's going on there it's an attention grabbing image but it hardly even approaches the depths that are available in that that text text. i think we do really benefit from having a guide not just to direct us to which text to read but to help us engage with the deeper and more meaningful portions of these texts you know that that really just do breeze by you when you first when you first read them especially if you read them at a young age i just taught on confessions for the second time in two years and i think i read it for my fifth time and i felt like i had never read it before Mm. as like such such as the mastery of of augustine's meditation and his reflection that 
you know, just the the modest amount of, of growth that I had over the past year was met with the profundity of another reading of, of that text, mm. right? I've benefited from folks over the years continually directing me to better and different ways to think of that text than I first had when I when I read it in college. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that makes this difficult, right? In one sense, doing a marathon is not hard, right? Mm-hmm. You just find, you, <laughs> just you get pick a book, get it, together yeah. and talk. And I think that that's really great. But the kind that we had, that we get to experience, I think is so difficult, right? Where we have people that have read things a bunch and are generally, I feel weird even saying I'm familiar with the Republic. I don't, I'm not totally convinced of that. But having an expert like Dr. Reynolds who is so capable to point us to those good questions while also being so humble that Mm -hmm. he's not going to just pronounce his opinions from on high for us to write down in our notes. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that because I was thinking, okay, the, the best environment for a marathon would be that you have a guide who can lead you through. But I think the second best is all amateurs mm-hmm. as opposed to the thing you don't want, which is someone who's going to spend the weekend pronouncing to you. Like Dr. Reynolds is fully qualified and capable of lecturing us on Plato. It would be fascinating. He would probably be right. But that's not what we're doing. And he does have the humility to lead those kinds of discussions. If any of you were recommending a text that wasn't Plato for a weekend marathon, what would you go with? What would you like to see a marathon? So that people thinking about this sort of thing and implementing it in their own communities might look to. I may have just... You know, shown my hand a bit, but, <laughs> but at the moment, I would be really inclined to recommend Confessions mm-hmm. by St. Augustine because there are so many different ways to go with that text. You can have the straight-up philosophical discussions with his encounters with the Platonists and, you know, kind of his working his way through the various heresies that come his way um, that he's, you know, brief, briefly entangled with. You can have some really good theological conversations. You can have some extremely meaningful devotional conversations mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so that's a text that I feel very confident in. You know, Not to say that you will agree with all of the conclusions that a- Augustine comes to in that text, but I have absolute confidence that it can be meaningfully discussed for far longer than 30 hours. Mm-hmm. I would say it's hard ruling out Plato because, of course, Plato, the the benefit of discussing Plato is that you're having a conversation about a conversation. Mm -hmm. And so you get to watch people try to understand the very ideas that you're trying to understand. And there's nothing more helpful. And the people who are in those conversations in the dialogues call them the interlocutors. We just mean the people who it's generally Socrates they're talking to. So the person that Socrates is talking to, it could be one person. It could be two people. It could be a room full of people and a couple people are speaking up here and there. Those people are also at varying stages of understanding Mm -hmm. and their background and their personality comes through in the way that they try to grapple with the ideas that are being presented. And so it's just enormously helpful. And so that was the that was the first thing that ever unlocked 
this kind of education for me. The first time I read Plato and had a discussion about it, I thought, oh, now I understand what I was supposed to be doing with Homer and all the other books that <laughs> I read before Plato the first few months that I was doing this. Um, so if but if that's if that's off the table, you know, like a nicer, a nice shorter dialogue like Mino or something like that. Phaedrus if that's off the table right now I'm like really feeling it with Shakespeare and so I would (laughs) say I would say that it doesn't take that long to read through a whole play Um, you could do it out loud in person if it also doesn't take long to read a play by yourself and then you just hit it hard with reading those scenes and working on your interpretation skills and then grappling with the questions that that are presented Shakespeare does a very similar thing to Plato I think in that he lets you embody people grappling with big ideas so there's there's two layers of interpretation that you get to play with there it's both what these people are trying to say and then are those people right and that just really gets my brain firing on all cylinders i love it i love it and our next podcast i think is gonna be a little bit of that with the merchant of venice so something for all of us to look forward to (laughs) oh man so this is hard because you asked the question, like, what would you like to see happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is not the accessible option. Uh-huh. But I I think, I mean, I, can we actually just do a marathon someday on War and Peace? Oh, oh I almost brought that one up, Because it's too. the best. And, and I think sort of similar to uh, Confessions in a lot of ways, it mm. has this sort so. of, like, combination of narrative, of character, and of contemplation all contained within it that allow for these like different pieces to then meet to discuss. Like you can talk about Tolstoy's ideas that he presents and then talk about them in relation to his characters, talk about them in relation to the events of his plots, talk about them in relation to just like the conversations that they have. There's all, there's just so much there that I, Oh man, I love that book. (laughs) But I think in a slightly more accessible, slightly, and also sort of meeting the, the thing that you were talking about, Megan, with, um, conversation about conversation or dialogue conversation about Mm -hmm. ideas whatever would be uh boethius Mm -hmm. constellation of philosophy i think would be another really great one because i think that throughout that text you end up having boethius say the sorts of things that people will say when considering the ideas that are being presented so i would i would say that well if chris gave two so i'm gonna give three (laughs) um i i would love (laughs) i would love uh something on the odyssey It'd be amazing. Milton's uh, uh, Paradise Lost, I think, would be so worth our time. But then um, the Brothers Karamazov. Yes, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it would. I think it just for some of the maybe the same reasons. Like maybe we're identifying having that polyphonic voice, those Mm multiple multiple perspectives. Um, but you could spend so much time just examining the three brothers, the the different perspectives the four they bring. Brothers. The four brothers. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> uh, um, the father. The father. Yeah, the father's also like there's there's so many um, perspectives, um, but also movements of contemplation and development that would be worth many a weekend. I think. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us. Um, thank you for listening. This has been Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School.